So how's everybody doing this morning? Are you guys ready to launch into a fresh understanding of what you're called to? Are you guys ready to lay down some of the things that may have acted as hindrances to your authority? Are you ready to be transformed and changed from glory to glory? Are you ready to have more of the Holy Spirit imparted to you? Are you ready to bring strongholds down? Are you ready to bring principalities and powers and ruling spirits down? Woo! Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of the Lord and he will raise you up. He is raising us up as we humble ourselves. Amen. Now, before I launch into this, I guess I already have, but somebody needs to put the giving details up on the screen for those watching online. If you'd like to give, if you're here in the building and you'd like to give, there is a box just next to the front door there. You can put it in there and, uh, or you can get the details for us for banking. So uh, I'm launching into uh, part one of what I believe will be a three-part series and I, um, I'm trying to get away from preaching series, but I realize that for me to adequately cover what God wants to reveal to us and impart to us, it's going to take more than one session, that's for sure. And so this uh, first session is called The Forerunner, Part 1, and it's about Elijah. Now, you've heard me preach on Elijah before, but you haven't heard me preach this. And uh, I just want to touch a little bit on the concept of the forerunner before I launch into this uh, preaching about Elijah. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, when uh, John the Baptist is about to appear on the scene, an angel appears to Zacharias to tell him, Zacharias, to tell him about the coming birth of his son, who would be known as John the Baptist, and he said this to him, he will also go before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now when it says at the beginning of that verse, he will also go before him, the NASB translation specifically uses the word forerunner. What does it mean? What does the word forerunner mean? And what does it mean for us specifically here in the 21st century? A forerunner is one who comes in advance to a place where the rest are to follow. The forerunner is what breaks through. The forerunner is what is who or a group of people that takes territory so that the rest can follow. It can be a person or it can be a group of people in a ministry setting such as this one. And I know in my heart that Open Heaven Church is called to be a forerunner ministry, a ministry with a breaker anointing to take territory for the Lord. But if you're going to be a forerunner, then you need to walk out your calling in an, and assignment in a manner that can serve as a model for those who come after you because you're breaking through into territory that others are going to come into. And the culture that you set, the standards that you set, and the anointing that you walk in serve as a model for those who come after you. So originally, I was going to share three examples of forerunner ministries with you from the Bible today. But as I mentioned before, I discovered uh, it didn't take me very long because I was writing so many notes that there was no way to cover this 
uh, in one week. So I'm going to take three weeks because this is really important. This is transformational for us as individuals and it's transformational for us as a ministry. So uh, this is in a series, but a series with a specific purpose. And one thing that the Lord spoke to me last night was that during this series, the finger of God is going to write on the walls of our hearts and we are going to be further positioned and transformed as forerunners. There will be some soul searching. There will be repentance. There will be deliverance. There will be inner healing. There will be fire. There will be glory. And there will be transformation. I believe that in this specific point in history, to be a forerunner means to carry the glory of God in such a way that it releases people into an encounter with God in such a way that it reconciles them to him through repentance. We live in a culture that does not know God and we are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, the Bible says, to bring God and his lost children back together. And this enrages the enemy. He hates it. And the enemy in our time has re-released a specific ruling spirit that has crept into the church, particularly in the West, I'm talking about the wider church here, in some cases forming strongholds and in others completely capturing and dominating entire movements. That ruling has a name, and the name of that spirit is Jezebel. And you would have noticed um, from towards the end of last year, as God began to lay, in, lay on my heart, what was coming against the church in this hour is that for most of our services, I open up with a declaration against the religious spirits and against the spirit of Jezebel because I believe that our forerunner ministry is here to tear down the altars to Baal that stop people from coming into relationship with Jesus. So I want to I promise you, if you think you've heard me preach on this before, I'm going to preach some stuff that I didn't know a week ago. <laughs> and uh, you're going to see this spiritual power, this ruling spirit in a new light. We're going to expose it and we're going to learn how to deal with it. And it's not going to happen in one week. And uh, so there are three prime examples of forerunners in the Bible who came up against this spirit. And so... Part one that I'm preaching today is about Elijah. And uh, we're looking at an era where Israel had sunk into what's known as syncretism. Syncretism is the belief or understanding that there are multiple gods you can serve, multiple gods you can uh, offer up sacrifices to, and they all lead generally in the same direction. And uh, at this time in Israel's history, this is about 860 uh, years before Jesus, a politically inspired marriage between King Ahab of Israel and Jezebel of Sidon. So, so Jezebel was an actual person in the Old Testament. She, was, she became the queen of Israel through this politically inspired marriage and it brought spiritual disaster to Israel. Jezebel's name 
tells you the foundation of who she was because um, her name literally means, firstly, unchaste, and secondly, Baal is husband to. This is somebody who was completely and totally given to the worship of Baal. And uh, after she married Ahab, what she began to do was usurp authority from the rightful ruler of the nation. And her aim was to completely remove the influence of God from the nation and turn the nation 100% toward Baal and away from Jehovah. In 1 Kings 21, 25, uh, God tells us about the wickedness of this situation because he says in that scripture that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. But I want you to understand something here, that just because the physical manifestation of this spirit, Jezebel, was a woman, Jezebel does not just manifest in women. It is a spirit. It can work through men and women. So Jezebel, because of her dedication to Baal, this is a, just a partial list of what she promoted and what she told people to step into as part of their dedication to this false god. And over the next few weeks, we're going to deal with every single one of them and we're going to learn how those things have manifested in our lives and what we can do to remove them. So Jezebel, because of her dedication to Baal, promoted idolatry, the worship of prosperity, witchcraft, seduction, sexual sin, prostitution, perversion, child sacrifice, incest, manipulation, control, jealousy and the usurping of God's appointed authority. And wherever you find politics, faction and factions and division insinuating their way into groups of God's people, you will find the Jezebel spirit behind it. That's quite a list of things to deal with, isn't it? Israel was completely caught up in all of this, this cult of Baal worship. And the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, Asherah was regarded as Baal's girlfriend, for lack of a better term. Um, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah feasted in the king's palace at Jezebel's table and they dressed accordingly. So they were dressed in the finest that the land had to offer. They had this, uh, this, this worship, these worship rituals that were meant to bring fertility that were meant to bring prosperity and all sorts of temple prostitution went on around this and he was the queen of Israel with all the finest foods and drinks of the kingdom laid out before these false prophets and at this crisis point in Israel's history God raised up a forerunner of revival a counterculture revolutionary prophet named Elijah and uh, you can tell how countercultural he was and how opposite he was to these prophets of Baal simply by how he turned up, how he was dressed when he turned up. The Bible describes him as a hairy man. <laughs> so I imagine this guy, big beard, long hair. It says he was dressed in a coat made from animal fur. And he had a plain leather belt. He was completely dressed opposite to the people he had come to oppose. 
What was his message? Repentance. Let me throw something at you. All preaching, all worship, all prayer, all intercession, all prophecy, everything that we do as Christians, when we encounter the presence of God, it should always produce in us repentance. That's how we change from glory to glory. So Elijah's message was repentance. And the first thing that we hear about this guy is 1 Kings 17 to 1, where he 17 verse 1, where he comes to King Ahab out of the blue. It says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. In other words, Elijah says, I am God's prophet. I stand in his presence. I have received his word, and this is what he has to say. There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. (laughs) This is the power of prophetic decree demonstrated to us. And this was a challenge to this God, Baal, who was the God of rain, who was the God of provision, fertility and storms. So what happened? Supernatural drought not even dew on the ground in the middle of winter for three and a half years and the nation goes into famine and need. They're sending out people all over the nation to try and find grazing land for the few flocks that they have left. Meanwhile, they're hunting Elijah down because they want to kill him. And Elijah turns up. I'm going to have to skip through some of this because otherwise I would be preaching about Elijah until Christmas time. And I'm sure God has other things in store for us. But let me just concertina this down a little bit and explain to you what happened. There's three and a half years of drought and Elijah comes back and he says, you know your prophets, Baal and Asherah, I want you to get them all together and I want all the people of Israel and we're going up Mount Carmel because I want a confrontation with your God. I have physically stood on the top of Mount Carmel. I've looked over the valley of Jezreel. I have seen the place where Elijah confronted those prophets. Powerful, powerful, powerful this is. So he confronts these prophets of, uh, of Baal and Asherah and he's saying to them, basically in a nutshell, he's saying, the God who answers by fire... In response to the call of his prophets, that's the God that this nation should serve, the God who answers by fire. And these prophets of Baal and Asherah, they dance around themselves, they cut themselves with knives, they're calling out to Baal, they're calling out to him for hours and hours upon end. And at one point Elijah gets a bit sick of the whole, uh, the whole party that's going on here, 850 people dancing around, slashing themselves with knives, this demonic display of worship. And Elijah says to him, hey, maybe he can't hear you because he's in the toilet. <laughs> Look it up. Says it in the word of God. <laughs> so what happens? They've got this altar there. They've got a big bull ready to be It's cut up. It's put on there. They're trying to call down fire upon this altar. And they finish. They finally give up. They're exhausted. They've got a bit of blood loss going on. They probably had to call 911 or triple zero as we have it here. And Elijah says, okay, you guys have had your go. Now I'm going to have mine. And he says, I want you guys to pour water 
upon this uh, sacrifice. I want you to pour it upon the altar. I want you to soak the wood. I want you to dig a trench around this altar and fill it with water because I don't want anybody to be confused about what happens next. And then he calls upon the God of Israel and fire falls upon the sacrifice. Fire burns up the water. Fire burns up the, the, the bull that's been sacrificed, it, it consumes the altar, it consumes the wood, it licks up all the water out of the trenches around the thing. The God of Elijah answers by fire. So here he is saying, your Baal, who's supposed to be the God of storms and fire and lightning and all those sorts of things, uh-uh, my God. And now I'm going to prove it to you beyond doubt because you've been praying to Baal for fertility and the prosperity of your land and nothing has happened. But I'm telling you, my God brings rain. And so he goes up the top of the mountain with his servant. We know the story sends him off. There's no, not a cloud in the sky. Eventually, seventh time, I believe, when he goes, there's a cloud the size of a man's fist. And such is the faith of this man, Elijah, that he turns to Ahab who's with him and he says, I'm racing you to the bottom. You better get down the bottom of this valley because pretty soon this place is going to be so waterlogged, your chariot's not going to be able to go. And so he outruns his chariot all the way to Jezreel. The heavens open and water pours out on the land for the first time in three and a half years, all because of one single man who carried the word of the Lord against 850 false prophets. In response, the entire nation is going, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Revival, right? Not quite. Look what happens next. First Kings 19, 1 to 3. King Ahab goes back to where Jezebel is and says this, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, you've got 24 hours to live. And he, in verse 3, I saw something that I'd never seen before about Elijah's response. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. When he saw that, not when he heard it, not when Ahab uh, conveyed the message to him orally that he took in through his ears, something happened in Elijah where he saw the threat of Jezebel being made reality against him. And I looked up the meaning of that word saw in the Hebrew. And this is my summary. Elijah didn't just see it, this threat, this threat of imminent death. He beheld it. He advised himself. He approved or came into agreement with the threat. He considered it. He discerned it. He experienced it in his mind. He gazed at it and finally took heed of it, came into agreement with the lie and ran for his life. 
A man who has just personally taken 850 prophets down to the brook and cut their throats and thrown them in the river, never to be discovered again, is intimidated by one woman who carries the spirit of Jezebel. Now, those of you who are familiar with the story are familiar with how far he ran. He ran supernaturally provided for by God's angels all the way to Mount Sinai where he hid in a cave. And this is where the story takes some really interesting turns because God found him there. You ever notice that? that When you've given your life to Jesus... When you're serving God, when you run astray, Jesus has this tendency, God has this tendency of turning up in the most unexpected places and tapping you on the shoulder and going, mate, what are you doing here? (laughs) To use the Australian vernacular. Me and my mates used to say to each other, we'd have this say, mate, what are you doing? I can just imagine God saying, oh, mate, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, let's not, God speaks all languages and he can speak in any accent. And in whatever. God meets you where you're at. Can I put it that way? 1 Kings 19, 11 to 13, God finds Elijah hidden away in this cave. <clears throat> I'm not going to hide in the cave. I'm just getting some water. <laughs> God finds Elijah hidden away in this cave and he says to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. God was showing off. See all these things that I can do, but now I want your attention. Because then after the fire, a still, small voice. That still, small voice spoke to me the night I was saved. Three words. John, forget the John, he already knows who I am. Peace, be still. And when I surrendered my life to Jesus for the first time, I knew what it was like to have peace with God and to have that emptiness close up. So the still small voice comes. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Mate, what are you doing? God drew him out with the still small voice. When God asks us a question, he doesn't ask it because he doesn't know the answer. He asks the question because he wants to correct us, restore us. In the process, he wants to tear down our wrong foundations and then edify us and build us up. He wants us to go from glory to glory. Now listen to Elijah's response when God asks him, what are you doing here? He says, oh, Lord, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Do you understand how opposite that is to what just happened? This is the man who single-handedly slew 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah and restored the worship of God to Israel, but he has been so intimidated by the spirit behind Jezebel that his understanding, his revelation of who he is and the situation he has just walked through is being completely turned upside down. And here's the... uh, Here's the grace of God. I heard our discipleship group in in one of the rooms in our house talking a little bit about the grace of God in the Old Testament. Here's the grace of God, an example of it in the Old Testament. Because the Lord doesn't acknowledge to him that he said anything wrong here. He's demonstrated to Elijah that the signs and wonders and everything like that are available. The earthquake, the wind, the fire, the thunder, all those things are available. But it's the voice of the Lord that carries authority. Is it not the voice of the Lord that called down fire from heaven on the top of Mount Carmel and the, and the, the sacrifice was consumed? And so the Lord recommissions him. He says to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. That's two, right? And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, the you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So he's been given three things to do. Does everybody understand that? It, will, it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And this is where he corrects Elijah. He says, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, hasn't kissed the idol and come into agreement with it. So he's been given this commission. But I want you to note a couple of things about this. And this is specifically to do with the idea that prophets belong in caves. Because the Bible says that Elijah was only in that cave for one night. And then, uh, so God only allowed Elijah to spend one night in that cave before he intervened. Because you see, the cave for Elijah was not about drawing aside to seek God. Did everyone get this? Jesus practiced solitude. We should all have a place where we can go to for our alone time with God. But what we should not reserve for ourselves is a place where we can go and light up a little cake for our pity party. We're not called to go and hide from God when things go wrong. We're not called to go and lick our wounds and go, oh, woe is me, and allow the enemy to turn upside down what God has done in our lives. Because I look around me today, 
and I see a group of people who, have, who God has mightily intervened in every single life here. And that's your testimony. And your testimony forms a foundation from which your faith can spring. Look what God did in the past. Now what's he going to do next? Not woe is me. See, the cave was about isolating himself and feeling sorry for himself. The Bible tells us not to isolate ourselves. The Bible tells us to gather together with other believers, does it not? See, Elijah had run from Jezebel with the wrong perspective and he got into that cave and he just magnified it. He's sitting there in the dark and going, oh, there's nothing I can do now. Look, I'm destroyed and I've got no future. And God turns up and goes, mate, what are you doing here? When Elijah was crying, woe is me, and saying, I'm the only one left, he was in agreement with a lie. God told him plainly, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. There is a remnant. You are not alone. Stop being intimidated by what you see as your past failures. Because I want to tell you that God does not see your failures like you do. And so we read this, right? And we think, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. We see, oh, God came in his grace and in his mercy and he corrected him. And we think, oh, yes, God restored Elijah. It's all good, right? He's restored in an encounter with God. How many assignments was he given? Three. How many did he fulfill? Two. Something wasn't quite right from that point on. How do we know this? Because he did not do one of the things that God commanded him to do. Here's the three things. Anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Now, we're not going to launch into all of this, but I want to tell you that Elijah did that. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Now, we know that he did the right thing with Elisha because Elisha is the one who inherited the double portion. Is that right? So what's the one that's missing? Anointing Jehu, the son of Nimshi. These three assignments were key to what God wanted to do in Israel. He wanted the nation cleansed of Baal worship. He wanted Jezebel gone. And one of the three assignments was that Elijah was commanded by God to anoint Jehu king of Israel because Jehu was, was going to play a part in destroying Baal worship. But Elijah never did it. It was not until 10 years later that Jehu was anointed king over Israel. Elijah didn't do it. Elisha did. Ten years. Think back ten years. How much has changed in your life? How much has changed in the life of our nation? How much has our world changed? How much has the church neglected to walk in the authority that the blood of Jesus gave us to see these things come down? 
Let me just plant that seed. 2 Kings 9, 1-3, this is probably about 10 years later. Elijah the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates, take him to an inner room, take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. Elisha knew that by anointing Jehu as king over Israel, he was, storing, he was stirring up a mighty hornet's nest. This was obviously a very dangerous assignment. But how dangerous could it be in comparison to lining up 850 prophets and killing them one by one? And yet Elijah was disobedient. Jehu was important because God needed a king with a warrior heart for justice who would execute God's judgment. And uh, I'm just going to read you the account of how Jezebel died at the hand of Jehu or because of Jehu. And you're going to hear a couple of things described in this account that we're going to revisit over the next couple of weeks because they speak to certain things going on in our society today. And I think you'll probably identify them just by listening to this little segment of Scripture. 2 Kings 9, 30 to 37. And just in case you're in doubt about what you're about to read, it's headed in my New King James as Jezebel's violent death. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel... Jezebel heard of it and she put paints on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs. Everyone know what a eunuch is? Eunuch is somebody who has been neutered. You know... Gender, right? No gender. Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him and then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. This is ruthless. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Right, I've done that. Give me a pie. Come on. He ate and drank. Then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, Dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. There wasn't enough left of her to bury. God intended that the judgment on Jezebel be made complete and that Baal worship would be eradicated. 
Elijah allowed the spirit of intimidation that Jezebel operated in to magnify his own fears and disable him. Somehow, he lost his edge. And I can see him in my mind's eye over that 10 years of disobedience being reminded time after time of what he was called to do but coming up with all sorts of excuses to delay it. Now it's all very well for us to talk about Jezebel back then and see this um, as something that happened in history but it has to have an application to us individually as forerunners and as a ministry, which is a forerunner ministry. So I want you to see two clear lessons that I see from this story. Lesson one, your past defeat does not disqualify you from victory. In the three things that Elijah was told to do lay his complete restoration And promotion. He had run from the spirit that he had been anointed to conquer. God wanted him to lay aside his past failures, his disappointments and the intimidation so that he could walk in the fullness of his calling in increased authority. God was actually promoting him in the face of defeat. Did you guys catch that? Because you need to catch that. He was promoting him even though he had been defeated. There is no record that Elijah had ever before anointed anybody to be king over nations before those three assignments that God gave him. He was promoting him. I'm going to put you before people that are going to be appointed as kings and they're going to execute judgment on my behalf because you come with my word to declare these things that are not as though they are. He left one undone. And in so doing, he perpetuated the evil of Jezebel for another 10 years. 10 years is a long time in the history of a nation. I was trying to think of a a graphic example. In 1933, Adolf Hitler, through a minority vote, came to power in Germany. By 1943, the whole world was at war because of him. That's how much things can change in 10 years. We are in the midst of a period of time in modern history where this spirit, this Jezebel spirit, we're going to learn how it's doing this over the next couple of weeks, is invading every area of Western culture and it has invaded and disabled and neutered the church. Lesson one. Your past defeat does not qualify you from vic- disqualify you from victory. In fact, 
you are qualified for promotion because you belong to him and because of the grace of God. Lesson two, we are going to have to be ruthless. Ruthless and fearless. Jehu was ruthless in his dealing with Jezebel. Elijah's failure to do what God asked him to do meant that judgment on the perversions of this wicked spirit and its effect on the nation did not come when God had intended them. If you want to deal with the spirit of Jezebel, you have to be ruthless, you have to be fearless, you have to deal with it wherever you find it. You cannot allow this spirit any room to operate in any area of your own life. Let me tell you, this thing is sly, it is insidious, it is sneaky, it loves to get in, it loves to cause all sorts of things and it wants to divide and compromise the people of God. And part of this process over the next few weeks is that I believe just sitting under this word is going to provoke you in the coming days to say, search me, Lord. Show me my heart. Show me where I have compromised and allowed this thing to have influence. Not only can you allow it no room to operate in your life, you cannot allow it to infiltrate any ministry you are accountable to God for. You can't. Nor can you afford to allow past defeats or past encroachments of the enemy to intimidate you out of your assignment. In a season where God is enlarging our sphere of influence, he is asking us to stand in increased authority. But if you attempt to stand in increased authority and you are compromised within the enemy just goes, oh, yeah, that open door over there, just go in there and let's just see what happens. And the enemy comes in and he throws a hand grenade in and bang, next thing you know, everything goes to down there. <laughs> Do you guys remember what I quoted about the reward for victory in battle is to be appointed to a bigger battle? You remember that? That's a great saying, right? I got it wrong. <laughs> it's not just victory that appoints you. It's obedience. It's obedience. Let me explain why. Because you might go up in warfare against something that God has called you into warfare against and you might to every eye around you and to your own eye might say, well, that all went down the toilet, didn't it? That didn't work out well at all. But you see, you've got to understand how the military works. The military doesn't work just based on victory after victory after victory after victory. 
What happens is the generals in that army, they look at people that are commanding divisions or that are commanding platoons or, 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 or squads of soldiers and they say, that battle that we lost over there, who was it that stood up when it counted? even though it meant that they had to retreat all the way back and they lost all that territory. Who was the one that refused to surrender? Who was the one that drew the others alongside them and said, I know that, that we are being defeated here, but we're not leaving any of our own on the battleground. We're taking them out of this place and we're going to live and fight another day and God is going to win the victory for us. You see, it's that heart attitude that gets you promotion in the kingdom. It's not all about win, 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 win. It's about fight, 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 even in the face of, of insurmountable odds where God says your failures actually qualify you for the next victory I have in store for you. Your defeat was actually a stepping stone to a greater victory in your future because you are called by my name. And the King of Kings, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords carries the name before which every knee will eventually bow. Amen. So wherever, wherever you find witchcraft, wherever you find the worship of prosperity, I want to tell you witchcraft, don't think about this as African witch doctors casting spells. Witchcraft is manifested in the church today. Spiritual witchcraft is alive and prospering in the church today. Wherever you find witchcraft, the worship of prosperity, seduction, sexual sin, perversion, child sacrifice, and you can put a slash in there and say abortion, incest, manipulation, control, jealousy, syncretism, the usurping of God's appointed authority, the political spirit insinuating its way into groups of God's people, you will find the spirit of Jezebel behind it. It has infested our society, it has infested the church, and it's got to go. Some of us here today, and this is a, this is a specific word, and I'm going to ask for a actually I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. Some of us here today, this is a specific word for people that are here today, and, and I'm sure watching on live stream as well. Some of us here today have allowed our past defeats to form strongholds in our minds and intimidate us, intimidate us back from victories that God has already appointed us to. Some of us are too afraid to go into warfare because of the collateral damage that came last time we went into battle. Some of us have, offered, have suffered losses in our income, in our family. We've seen the enemy wreak havoc all around us because we came up against this thing and we defeated. We were defeated and we saw carnage around us in our lives and all the rest of it. And so we thought, oh, I'm just going to pray this way. I'm not going up against that stronghold. I know what happened last time I went into this spiritual warfare, but this spiritual warfare business, I'm not too sure about this. Some of us here today have allowed our past defeats to form a stronghold in our minds and intimidate us away from victories that God has already appointed us to. I want to tell you that God has appointed us to walk in victory over every manifestation of the spirit of Jezebel. Why? Because he who dwells in us is greater than he who dwells in the world. And Jezebel has no right to influence any of us. He only, the, the spirit of Jezebel only operates where we leave open doors. And over the next month, these doors are going to be slammed shut. These things are going to be evicted. 
We're going to stand in opposition. How do we stand in opposition? We, we walk in purity. We walk in holiness. We walk in the righteousness that Jesus gave us as his perfect gift. We walk uh, according to the power of the word of God. And because the blood of the lamb has already paid the price for every victory. And the first step toward us walking in the realm of authority that has been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus is to repent of not taking on the enemy. Some of us have taken in the enemy instead of taking him on. Did you get that? Some of us have taken in the enemy instead of taking him on. I understand there's a cost to this. There is a price to this. But in our short 70, 80, perhaps 90 years on this planet, how do those years compare to all eternity? When God has selected us to specifically live in this season where this spirit is coming so hard against the church, who are we to refuse Him? He appointed us. He knew us before He formed us in our mother's wombs. And He chose you for this season. He chose you for this time. He has appointed you to victories that you have never, ever imagined. And I would say today, in the name of Jesus Christ, intimidation associated with the spirit of Jezebel, you are coming down today in this place. You are not going to intimidate the people of God anymore. You are not going to, you are not going to intimidate us into making compromises in our lives. We are not going to allow open doors for Jezebel to operate in our lives anymore. We are going to walk in repentance. Jesus is releasing a desire, a supernatural desire for purity and for holiness in this season so that we would walk just as opposite to the spirit that we come against as Elijah did to the prophets of Baal. They came in all their finery. We come dressed in rags. But with the blood of Jesus, with the blood of Jesus, and when those rags come off, gets what's under them? The robes, pure white robes of righteousness. It's time for the prophet, it's time for the prophet to rip off the disguise and stand in opposition. It's time for the church to arise in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not just the spirit and power, but the double portion to which we are called. If not us, who? If not now, when? God is asking us. He's calling us. So I want you to make, in the spirit of not being intimidated any longer, I invite those who recognize that they have allowed intimidation to compromise their commitment to come out the front right now. Don't be intimidated from admitting that you're being intimidated. Because when we come before the Lord and we repent of being intimidated, guess what? The spirit of boldness, the spirit of courage comes upon us. You are all mighty Gideons. You don't need a huge army. You only need the remnant that God appoints to you. We are a remnant. We have the Spirit of the Lord. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Renee had a vision over the past week and she saw white flags over this church. You know what those white flags represent? Surrender. We're surrendering to Jesus, not the enemy. The white flags are our surrender to Jesus, not the enemy. And right now, what the Holy Spirit is going to do is refill those who need a fresh impartation, a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit upon their lives to give you boldness, to give you courage, so that you will not walk in intimidation any longer. You will not be subject to manipulation and control. The sexual bondages are going to go. There's going to be things that happen in our lives over the next month. We're going to turn around four weeks from now. I make this prophecy in the presence of the Lord. We will turn around four weeks from now. We won't recognize the people that we once were because the Spirit of the Lord says enough. The Spirit of the Lord says enough. It's time for my church to rise. It's it's time for my church to war against the strongholds that have held you back. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So there's a refilling. Can everybody put your hands up like this and just receive from the Lord? I thank you, Lord, that right now your spirit, Lord, is coming upon each one, each one here. The spirit of the Lord is coming upon each one here. A fresh impartation, Lord. Authority, authority. Authority, authority, authority being released right now from the Spirit of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 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 church put up the white flag surrender to Jesus this morning (laughs) thank you Lord I just want to prophesy over those on live stream this morning that the spirit and power of Elijah is available to you the double portion is available to you I want to invite you wherever you are in your rooms get down on your knees or whatever posture uh, involves you humbling yourself before the King of Kings and just receive a fresh impartation. I release the fire of your Holy Spirit, Lord, upon those on the live stream. I thank you for that fire, Lord, that purifying, refining fire, lighting people up, Lord, perpetual, consuming fire in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.